0: And I'm excited to open to you one of my my favorite passages in all of scripture. Before you do, let me tell you a little story. When I was was barely a teenager, I remember going to my cousin's house and they lived just far enough away where we didn't get to see them very often. They lived over on the Dallas side of the metroplex and we lived on the Fort Worth side of the metroplex. And so when we got together, it was a really special and fun occasion. And it was fun because it was me and my sister and him and his sister, and we were all like one year apart from each other, just the whole way down over four years. And we had a great and fun friendship. And whenever we got together, we'd obviously stay up way too late, uh, talking, playing games, and uh, just, just enjoying each other's company and watching movies. Well, for whatever reason, once the video games were turned off, the movie ended, me and my cousin were trying to go to sleep on this pool way bed and he was just he was troubled something was bothering him and so we start talking and you know he he says now what, what do you think about revelation like like in, in general just like god telling us stuff or you, the book the book what do you think about the book and so we got talking about the end times and you know as as things went on i could tell he wasn't really concerned about revelation per se there was something else on his mind And he finally let me know that he was concerned that he wasn't sure if he was really a Christian or not. See, he had prayed a prayer when he was younger about accepting Christ into his heart, and he was scared that that wasn't enough, or that maybe he could have lost his salvation since then. And I remember we talked for a while after that, and we prayed together, and he did go to sleep finally, feeling much more at peace and having confidence in his faith. And my cousin's concern and anxiety, it's something I think that a lot of us go through at some point in our Christian walk. Their fear, the, the fear that there's some missing component to our salvation, that we almost got there, but maybe we just missed the mark by an inch. Or maybe we have this concern that Christianity and our salvation is like water in a pool, and it evaporates, and we gotta keep topping it off throughout, a, throughout our lifetimes, or else we will lose it. And honestly, I think this is a good thing that we stop and think about. Like if you have these questions and this anxiety, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a really good thing. Uh, especially for those of us who came to Christ at a young age and now we're getting older. It shows that you're carefully thinking about what have you placed your faith in. That you're examining your heart and making sure your faith wasn't in just some prayer you prayed in kindergarten, but it, it is in the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus our Lord. But, you know, it can also be a frustrating thing to have these questions if you don't know where to go in the Bible to get the answer to these questions. So my goal this morning is, is to work through these questions with you so that we can know God more fully. Because one of the wonderful truths about our Christian faith is that God desires for us to know him and to know him More. I want you to think about that. If you're here this morning and you feel anxiety about these different things in your life, be it salvation or something else, 1 Peter 5 6 and 7 tells us to cast all our anxieties on Him because He cares for you. A part of God's great love for you includes His desire for you to be at peace, secure in the knowledge of who He is. And when it comes to understanding what Your salvation is in? What's the process of salvation? What is the means that secures you? I can think of no other book in the Bible that so directly and unambiguously reveals God's eternal plan as Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. And so I I want us to specifically look at Ephesians 2 this morning. So head that way uh, if you're not already there because this Ephesians 2 answers the big question of what is my role in salvation? Which is our title for this morning if you want to fill out an outline if you enjoy doing that. And I want to answer this question because once you have a firm biblical understanding of what your role is in salvation, you're going to find that you can very easily answer the other questions that I've I've mentioned this morning. And the central idea or theme we're going to be seeing unfold in this passage is that if salvation is a gift of grace through faith, then you can add nothing to your salvation, nor can you take anything away from your salvation. I'll give you just a moment to copy this. It's up here on the screen. And, and guys, if, if I go fast this morning, which I might, uh, this PowerPoint, it's on the NBC app. So you can kind of go through these notes and listen to this again later if there's anything where you want some more answers on or hear it again. Uh, but again, our, our theme is, if salvation is a gift of grace through faith, then you can add nothing to your own salvation, nor can you take away anything from your salvation. Now, as much as I would like to just jump into Ephesians 2, uh, there's a problem. Can I get a volunteer to read for me just the first two words of Ephesians 2.1? Someone who can say it loud. Go ahead, Nico. And you. Now, if you have the NIV, it might be the first three words, which would be as for you, but pretty universally across every translation of the Bible that I saw, it starts off and you. And, and our problem here is that, you know, it's one of those phrases when you get to it, you need to stop and, and realize that God, through whoever human author he has inspired to write this book, in this case, Paul, uh, God is, is building up something from what he just said. So there, there's something that came before, and then you get this and you. So we're building up off of what just came before. Now, when, when, when God first breathed this out, did, did he include the chapter and verse numbers for Paul? Do you think that was something he's like, okay, uh, you're done with Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, 1, and you, Ephesians 2, 2. Like, is that how God revealed it to Paul? What do you think? If you think yes, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, put your hands down. No, no, that's not how it was. Uh, the verses and chapters were added in 1277-ish, AD, and they were designed so that we could more easily find a specific reference in the Bible. It it was put there for our benefit, but they are not divinely inspired. Ephesians, as it was written, is just one continuous letter. So when we read Anu, we got to back up a little bit. And we're going to see what he just wrote in Ephesians 1. Which means, before we go to Ephesians 2, we're going to answer the question what is my role in salvation? Uh, In Ephesians 1, we're going to see Paul reveals to us the answer to the question, what is God's role in salvation? So for our outline, before we get to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which is really I want to focus on, before we get there, we got to go back to Ephesians 1, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 14 at God's eternal salvation plan. And not just God, but specifically the triune God's salvation plan. Ephesians 1 through through 14 is going to look specifically at what each member of the Trinity does in regards to our salvation. Then we'll look at mankind's universal condition in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. Next, we'll look at God's unbelievable rescue in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. And finally, we'll look at God's unmistakable purpose in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So if you're at Ephesians 2, and I hope you are, go ahead and just glance to your left a little bit, and we're going to read Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. The Word of God says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, there are a lot of pronouns in that section, aren't there? For his glory in him sealed. Uh, it, it can be a little hard to follow. But at, just understand, like I, I'm not a Greek scholar, uh, but through my reading, do my best to follow sentences, along with my, my little handy lexicon. Uh, most of the hymns in this paragraph, about 80 percent of them, I'd say, are talking about God the Father. And the reason for that is that this is a passage in which Paul is praising God the Father who has given us every spiritual blessing through saving us as the Father planned out each role that he, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would play in our salvation. And so what I want to do is I want to look at each of the three members of the Trinity, how they are involved in our salvation The first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the Father's role in salvation. And we're going to do this as quickly as we can, but we're really going to dwell here for a little bit because I want you to see how fully God has cared for you through salvation. So first, it tells us when, when it comes to our salvation that the Father chose us. That is, he predestined us before the world was ever founded that we would come to him. And this passage compares this predestination to being adopted into God's family. We see this in verse 4, which says, Even as he chose us, he being God here, the Father. In verse 5, he, the Father, predestined us. And verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Second, we see that the Father, uh, he didn't just choose us, but uh, he did it before the foundation of the world. And if you look at verse 4 again, it says, just as he chose us in him, and when did he choose us? Look at Ephesians 1.4, what does it say? Just as he chose us. Does anyone have a Bible this morning? Yeah? Ephesians 1.4. What was that? Say it loud. Exactly, thank you. It says, before the foundation of the world. Third, the Father did this in accordance with, with his own will. Verse 5b according to the purpose of his will, verse 9 according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, and verse 11 according to the purpose of him who works all things. This isn't someone else convincing God to do something. God chooses us in accordance with his own will. And fourth, he did it in accordance with his own counsel. This is showing that that God, not just the Father, but the entire Trinity together counseled among themselves, and they ordained who would come to him. Verse 11b, it says, according to the counsel of his will. And fifth, the Father chose those he predestined for his own glory. This isn't just for our benefit. This is for the glorification of God. We see this in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. In verse 14, again, to the praise of his glory. Six, the Father chose us by his grace. We see this in verse 6. It says, according to the praises of his glorious grace. In verse 7b, according to the riches of his grace. And finally, seventh, the Father chose us for a purpose. Verse 7b, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. And verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Guys, God did not save you just so that you can sit around and be some monk on a mountain. God saved you for a specific purpose that we should fulfill it. God the Father has predestined us to salvation, those who would be adopted into his own family by his grace for his glory, according to his will and according to his own counsel, before the world was ever created so that we should be holy and blameless before him. And that's an incredible truth, everyone we are told that we have not been chosen based on our intelligence or our good looks or athletic abilities or how effective we would be in advancing God's kingdom. That is not why God chose us. It's not about what we bring to God. The Father chose us according to his grace, according to his good pleasure, and for his glorification. And if you're, if you're not really convinced of this truth and you think, "Oh, well, I, I don't know, I feel like I need to be at a certain level of goodness before God would look at me and say, yeah, you know what, I'm going to choose this one now. If you're thinking, I am just too sinful for God to ever look at me in good pleasure, understand this so fully. In Romans 9, 11, 13, we're told that for though the twins, that's talking about Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. So that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, that is, the, Jacob and Esau's mother, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God's choice of Jacob, it had nothing to do with how holy Jacob was. In fact, let's let's be really honest about the nature of Jacob's character. Jacob was a pretty wicked guy most of his life. He was duplicitous. He was deceitful. He married a woman he didn't love with the full intention of marrying his sister, her sister. He basically kidnapped his entire family and disappeared into the night so that he wouldn't have to talk to his uncle about it. He played favorites with his children, despite it causing harsh divisions in his family. When he finally did make up with his brother after stealing his birthright from him. He continued to lie to him. He said, oh, you know, you go on ahead and I'll catch up with him. And he never did. Jacob was not a great guy. And God did not choose Jacob because he saw he needed Jacob to complete his grand plan. God chose Jacob despite his many flaws and imperfections because of God's great love and compassion that he chose to pour out on Jacob. The Father predestines to salvation those who would be adopted into his family by his grace for his glory, according to his will, and according to his own counsel before the world was ever created, so that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the Father's role in our salvation. What about the Son, then? What is Jesus Christ, that is God the Son's, role in our salvation? Well, again, according to Ephesians 1, through the section we just read, first we see that the the son's role is to be the means of our adoption. We saw this in verse 5. He, that is the father, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And in verse 11, in him, Christ, we have received an inheritance. Second, the son provides us redemption through his blood. Verse 7, in him, the son, we have redemption through his blood. And real quick, I mean, we use the word redemption a lot, right? Like Anyone who's grown up in a church environment, you hear, we've been redeemed. We've been redeemed. Has anyone ever stopped to look up what redeemed actually means? Like It's something that we use and we know how to use it, but we don't know what it means, I feel like, a lot of the times. At least I don't. I'm really bad about this. Redemption means to recover ownership over something by paying a specified sum. When we say that Christ has redeemed us through his blood, we're recognizing that we all should belong to God. And yet it's our own sin that has broken that ownership as we've ripped ourselves away from God's fellowship and that the only way to restore us into a right ownership under God's authority was for the son to pay a ransom of his blood with his death on the cross. In the son, God has recovered ownership over us through the payment of the son's blood. A Third, we see that the son brings us forgiveness for our trespasses. Continuing from verse 7, uh, which said, remember, in him, the son, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Verse 8 says, which he lavished on us. Well, I skipped ahead because I, I like that one. Sorry. Fourth, he lavished it on us. Uh, and I know lavished isn't exactly a word we use much anymore. Because it means to be, it, but it means to be characterized by extravagance. The idea here is, here is that you don't just have a lot of something. You have a ridiculous amount of something, like in far, uh, far, far excess of what you could ever possibly need. Like, do any of y'all know Beanie Babies? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so when when I was a kid, Beanie Babies were new, and they were actually worth a stupid amount of money. And people would fill up rooms with these Beanie Babies. I mean, when when we talk about someone being lavished, just imagine a, a room full of Beanie Babies. This is in far of excess of what you could ever possibly need or want. So the idea here is that we haven't just been given just enough forgiveness to barely cover, you know, the sins we have. The idea here is that Christ has super abundantly deposited such great stores of forgiveness into your account that you could never begin to deplete them no matter how many lifetimes you had to live. And this is extremely important. God has lavished forgiveness on you. Once you come to him, you are not in danger of losing your salvation. God knew from the beginning who you are. He knew the sins you would continue to commit after you came to faith in him, after you came to faith in him. And yet he super abundantly lavished forgiveness on you anyway. Well, fifth, the son makes known to us the mysteries of God's will. And we see this according to verse nine. And remember, when the Bible talks about a mystery, we've talked about this a couple times, this isn't Sherlock Holmes. It's not that you found the butler Dead on the ground, and you gotta do all the forensics as you piece together who done it. No, when the Bible talks about a mystery, we're talking about something that used to be unknown, but has now been revealed to us. The Son has, through his work on the cross, made known to us those things which were previously hidden away from the believer's understanding. And we see this actually being done in Luke 24, verse 17 where the resurrection, resurrected Christ comes and meets two of the disciples on the road, and he reveals to them all the things that the Old Testament said about himself. Jesus was revealing the mysteries that were previously hidden from them. Christ makes known to us the truth about God's will that were at one time hidden from man's understanding. In 6, we see that in our salvation, the Son has obtained an inheritance for us. Verse 11, in him the Son we have obtained an inheritance. So when we take this all together, we see that the role of the Son in our salvation is to be the means of our adoption, having purchased redemption for us through the violent outpouring of his blood so that he could superabundantly lavish forgiveness on us, having obtained an inheritance on our behalf and revealed to us what is the will of God that was previously hidden from man's understanding. Finally, we have God the Holy Spirit. So what's God's the Holy Spirit role in our salvation? According to Ephesians 1, the first thing we see is that he seals our salvation. We see this in first, verse 13. It says, You also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. And, as, and importantly, I want you to notice the order of, of operations here. Any, any math people in here? You are familiar with Please Excuse My Dear Aunt Sally? It's the order of operations, parentheses, exponents, multiplication. Yeah, y'all got it. Uh, We have to look at the order of operations that this verse 13 shows us. We hear the message of the truth. Someone has to tell you the gospel first. That's where it all starts. And after you hear the message of truth that is the gospel, the gospel is what leads us to belief. And at that moment of belief, God seals us in himself with the Holy Spirit. So it's not that our belief or works is that sealing us. It's not a matter of my faith sealing my salvation. God is the one who seals it for himself. Second, we see that the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our future inheritance. This is again in verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And third, the Holy Spirit is given as proof that we are God's own possession. And this is in verse 14, which continuing says, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So to sum it up, the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation is that he seals our salvation at the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ and serves as a pledge of our future inheritance, proving that we are God's possession until he brings us to himself. Christian, these truths should cause us to praise God. They are incredible and awe-inspiring. If I were to distill each of these truths we've gone over, like I, I got a nice paragraph that summarizes each one of the, 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 the members of, of, the, of the Trinity's roles. But if I were to just put in a single sentence for each member, it is, the Father chose us, the Son saved us, and the Holy Spirit seals us. And as Ephesians 1 wraps up, Paul launches into this prayer of thanksgiving to God for the saints in Ephesus, and he asks God to give them even more wisdom so they can know God even more fully. And I have to admit that if I'm reading through Ephesians 1, I got that temptation maybe to get a little big head. I mean, think about it. God has revealed that he's done some incredible work just to get me. And then Paul, he's like, and guys, let me just thank God for you and you're like, yeah! Now, Bennett is kind of awesome. And maybe it is that when it says that God chose us before the foundation of the world, maybe these people who say that God just kind of looked through the passages of time, and he saw those who would choose him, and he chose them, and maybe there's some credence to that because I am pretty cool. Well, thankfully, that's not what it is. And as I eagerly turn to Ephesians 2, I'm hit with a hard truth right off the bat. Who's willing to, in a nice, loud voice, read Ephesians 2, just verse 1 for me? Go for it, as loud as you can. can can Ephesians 2, 1. No worries. Someone else? Ephesians 2.1. Go for it, Molly. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And trespasses and sins. Guys, if, if I came from Ephesians 1 feeling great, God says, whoa, pump the brakes. Let me explain your condition. You are not that great, Matt Bennett. No, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And this is the beginning of our second section in our outline. We finally got there. Congratulations, everyone. Uh, What is our universal condition? And this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." If you end chapter One, with any misplaced shred of confidence in yourself in your own perceived good works or your own perceived value, your talents, your social status, anything at all, God spells it out for you in black and white, through the pinnacle that when it comes to your own role in salvation, you are dead. Now I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but dead people are remarkably renowned. For one very specific trait in their abilities, you know what it is? What's a dead person known for? Decaying. Decaying. That's not something they can do, though. What 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 can a dead person do? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, dead people—they're renowned for their complete lack of ability. Like, uh, you know, I I had a a wonderful dog when I was a kid. and, you know, he could do all sorts of tricks. He could, he could jump. He could, you know, balance the, the biscuit on his nose. Wonderful dog. Got hit by a car and died. Sorry, that's how most of my stories end. I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> but I, don't have, I don't have happy stories. I'm, I apologize. You know, when he was dead, I could call his name, and he wouldn't come for some reason. When he was dead, he couldn't do the tricks anymore. Guys, when we're dead, we can't even stink on our own. We can't decay on our own. It is outside forces working on our now dead body that causes us to decay and causes us to stink. When it comes to earning your salvation, you cannot have any sort of active role in it because you are dead. And how are you dead? I feel like Paul, ultimately God, knew that there would be a few Nicodemuses out there. Remember Nicodemus? He comes to God and Or Jesus, and he says, you know, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you got to be born again. And he goes, what? How how can I be born again? I'm a full-grown adult. And and I feel like there'd be, Paul understood, there'd be people who go, well, how can I be dead? Look, I I can walk, do a little dance. I can jump. I'm thinking. I'm breathing. How can you say that I'm dead, Paul? He says, you're dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air which is a poetic way of saying that we are living in accordance with Satan's will. We understand, everyone, that Satan has been given a certain degree of freedom on the earth, that he is allowed to influence the mindset of the rulers, our, our governments, and we certainly see it working out, don't we? We see Satan's influence. We see how our government is dead set at making it so that you can kill an unborn child. We see how our government is dead set to making it so that you can mutilate your body. And that if you don't, as a parent, let your child mutilate themselves, they will take that child away from you and do it for you. We see this is where we're going. Satan is influencing those in power. And before we come to Christ, we are in lockstep with that desire. Just like how salvation is a spiritual rebirth, prior to being made alive in Christ, we were spiritually dead and bound under Satan's cruel influence. And notice how Paul, he specifically mentions that we were dead in our tr- sins, and which we once walked. This is a past tense thing. He's talking specifically to believers in this passage and He wants you to know that if you're now a believer, this describes how you used to be. This is not how you are to continue going. Our life, after being made alive, is one in which we are to no longer walk in sin. Now, does this mean that we're going to be perfect? Is there anyone perfect in here? Put your hand down, Nathan. <laughs> no, of course, it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. If no Christian ever fell into even patterns of long-term sin, and understand this, this is important. As a Christian, you are at risk of falling into patterns of long-term sin. And if this wasn't true, God wouldn't have given us Matthew 18, where he gives us church discipline. And he says, if you see your brother brother sinning, you come and you talk to him. And if he repents, rejoice. But does he always repent? No, sometimes sometimes. You are so stuck in your sin, that first person coming and talking to you, it's not enough. And a group of people come and talk to you, and sometimes it's still not enough. Guys, we are told to lovingly confront the person in this pattern so that they can come to repentance. And this is so very important. I have known too many Christians who walk around in a state of permanent spiritual defeatedness because they are imperfect. Imperfect. They have bought into the lie that they are supposed to be perfect. We are supposed to be perfect, excuse me. They have bought into the lie that they will be perfect after coming to Christ. And because they're not perfect, they walk around just crushed instead of having the freedom that's supposed to come in Christ. We will not live sin-free, although we are called to be sin-free. And look at how we're described as walking before we come to Christ in verse three. It says, we indulged ourselves in the desires of the flesh and mind. There we go. Uh, While a Christian may at some point in their walk find themselves falling for some sin over and over again and to the point that it's a, a pattern of sin that must be confronted, this is the important distinction. It's not gonna be something that we go out of our way to indulge in. Before you come to Christ, you indulge in everything. Every sinful thing that comes your way, man, I am there. But once you come to Christ, though we may fall into that sin pattern, it's not something we indulge ourselves in anymore. So what is our role in earning our spiritual salvation? Well, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us that prior to salvation, we were spiritually dead, Unwilling to respond to God's call for salvation as we indulge ourselves in the desires of our flesh and wholeheartedly followed after Satan's call of rebellion against God. And this is why Ephesians 2 4 is such a precious verse to me. God sent his Son to die for my sins. Christ was beaten, he was mocked, he was cruelly crucified all so that he could bear the wrath of God for the ones who were in the process of killing him. And yet, despite knowing this, I rejected God. I pursued the pleasures that this world has to offer, pleasures that left me feeling empty and worthless. And this isn't something unique to me. Ephesians 2.3 says, at the very end of it, it says, even as the rest. This is something all of us do before we come to Christ, all of us had a shared heritage of rejecting God and pursuing after the joys of the life. And understand that if you have not accepted Christ as your savior, then this still describes you this morning. You're still in Ephesians 1 through 3. In fact, there's a man named John D. Rockefeller. There's some debate whether this is a true quote or not, though I, I certainly... Tend to believe that it is, Rockefeller was regarded as the richest man to have ever lived. Now, I would make the aside aside from Solomon, but from the world standard, he was the richest man that ever lived until 2021, at which point it became Elon Musk. But until then, it was John D. Rockefeller. And a reporter asked him, he said, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money do you need to be happy? And the richest man alive said, just a little bit more than I have. The things of this world, be it wealth or relationships or whatever good thing you want to take and abuse it as you worship it instead of the creator, understand it can never ever bring you satisfaction. Understand that if you are caught in a worthless endeavor, or understand that if you are not in Christ, you are caught in a worthless endeavor to find pleasure that will leave you feeling gutted and absolutely dissatisfied. And if that is you, Ephesians 2.4 is for you. You are opposed to God and are rebelling against him, but God is rich in mercy for you, O sinner. This is the unbelievable, unbelievable rescue on your outline, and let's read this section. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show you the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Where Ephesians 1 looked at God's eternal plan for all of those who he would choose to come to him, Ephesians 2, 4, 7 gives us a practical look at how it plays out for us individually at the moment of salvation. Notice again the order. It says, first, God was rich in mercy towards us because of his great love for us. And second, it was because of this great love that he had for us that while we were still dead in our trespasses, That is to say, it's not that we had a little bit of good in us. It's not that we were made just enough alive so that we could choose him. And this is a very important distinction. The Bible clearly teaches that you were completely dead. You had no good. You had no life in you whatsoever. And yet at the same time, somehow, you were actively against him. You wanted nothing to do with him. You were an enemy combatant against him. We were rejecting his authority and pursuing Satan. But even when we're in this condition, God acted and forcibly brought you to life. God made you alive with Christ. And fourth, having raised us from death to life with Christ, God has seated us in the heavenly places. And fifth, He did this so that for the rest of eternity, he could show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. From beginning to end of salvation, notice that you have no active participation in it. God is the one acting out his will for his glory on you. We are the humble and undeserving recipients of his graces And his kindness because of his great love toward us. And then to wrap up this amazing gospel presentation that that Paul just laid out for us in these four verses, Paul gives this final summary. Why has God saved us like this? What was his purpose? In verses. 8 and 10 of Ephesians 2, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. God has saved you by grace through faith to do good works. And specifically, the good works God prepared for you. And notice what amazing difference this is between Ephesians 2 and verse 10. Before God made us alive in Christ, we were bound in slavery. We were unable to do anything except follow after the course of the power of the air that is Satan. That was our lot in life. And yet we come to Ephesians 10 and now we've been freed. We're free to follow God. We're free to do the good deeds that we don't have to look for. God prepared them for us so that we could do them. I cannot tell you what a liberating truth this is. So how can we apply this? I, I don't have super specific examples. Like, it's not going to be a one, one through three. We're going to go back and we're going to answer the questions I brought up at the beginning. How can we apply this? Well, now when you're up late at night and you're wondering, am I really saved? You can come to Ephesians and ask yourself, what is my trust for salvation in? Is it in the things that I've done? No, it can't be the things you've done. Guys, Ephesians 2.1 tells us that before God made us alive in Christ, we were dead in our sins. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that our salvation was a gift and it was given apart from our works. If my works were required, were a required piece for salvation, then it could no longer be called a gift. What do we call something someone gives you because of, because of work you've done? What's that? Just shout out. Wages. They're called Wages. And if we want to talk about wages, our works get us, well, there's a verse that covers that, isn't it? It's Romans 6.23. It gives us the answer that our wages have earned us death, but it is the free gift of God that brings us eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But if your confidence is in the saving grace of Christ Jesus on the cross, as Romans 9-10 says, and if you've confessed with your mouth Jesus Lord and believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you're in Christ. You can have peace and confidence. You don't need to sit there going, am I in Christ? You can come here and you go, God has promised me that if this is true about me, I am in Christ. And you can go to bed with peace in your heart. And then you can turn to Ephes- read Ephesians 2.6 and you can know that at the very moment of salvation, God seated you in the heavenly places. In God's view, it's not like, it's not like you're almost there at the very moment you are saved, it's as if God has taken you and put you in heaven already. When you're caught in a pattern of sin and you're racked with guilt, as you should be, and you wonder if you could lose your salvation, you can turn to Ephesians 1.13 and remember that the Father himself has given you himself. Guys, we often, when we think about the Holy Spirit, we, we kind of have him tacked on, don't we? We have God the Father, and we worship him, and we have God the Son, and we thank him for saving us, and then we have God the Holy Spirit, and we kind of zip up. Understand that this is God, and God has given you himself to dwell in you. The God of the universe who created everything is in you as a Christian, and he holds you fast. And you can see that the Holy Spirit seals your salvation for all time. And then you can turn to verse eight and you can remember that the son has super abundantly lavished forgiveness on you. Yes, you should repent of your sin. Yes, you should stop sinning. But you can have confidence that you're not gonna lose your salvation. God doesn't give it to you and then go, whoops, (laughs) you lost it. I I made a boo-boo. I forgot you're gonna sin this much. God has super abundantly lavished his forgiveness on you. So that you can never dream of running out of it. And then you can flip to Ephesians 2.10 and you remember that you are God's workmanship called not to continue on in sin but to walk in the good works God has already prepared for you. And you can have the absolute peace as you determine in your heart to day by day reject that th- sin. Are you going to perfectly do it? No. If you're caught in a long time pattern of sin, guys, it's hard to get out of it. That's why day after day we come up here and we preach God's word to you because we want to equip you to not get into sin in the first place. Because once you get in that pattern, you're going to need help. And it's going to be hard. But you can remember that I cannot lose my salvation. And instead of walking around defeated, as you just resign yourself in cuffs to live in that sin for the rest of your life, you can go, no, I have been given the power to break free of this. And you can find the support and those around you. And in just a few weeks, at the end of October, we as a church party, we're going to start a class on evangelism, both in Equip and here. And when you get an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, you don't need to panic. And you don't need to go, I don't know if I'm qualified to give this person the gospel presentation, so I'm just going to zip my lips. No, God doesn't care how good your gospel presentation is. You are not an active member in someone else's salvation. It's God. God is the only one at work. And if if you mumble through the gospel presentation, you don't know if that's going to be the thing that God says, yes, this truth is what this man has been waiting for. And I'm calling him. I chose this one before the world was ever formed. And I prepared the good work for you to come and awkwardly, give the gospel presentation as horrible as it was so that I could redeem this person. I told you about my cousin Grant at the beginning, how he was racked with doubt about his salvation. And though he went to bed feeling at peace that night that he was saved, his doubts came back. And for a time, as he grew older, he forgot his first love and tried to find peace in the pleasures of this world. But they could not bring him joy. They only brought him sorrow and emptiness. Last month, on October the 13th, we observed the 18th year that's passed since Grant made a choice that cannot be unmade. And left this world. Grant forgot the promises that God has given us here in Ephesians 2. But God has certainly not forgotten Grant. And I will see him again someday. Though at the end of his life, he lost sight of his Savior, I know the God whom Grant had originally placed his faith in his true faith. And Romans 8, 38 through 39 echoes the promise told to us in Ephesians 1 and 2 when Paul writes this glorious truth about salvation when he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, and guys, that includes you, you are a created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christians, our spiritual struggles do not end just when we come to Christ. Satan will try to rob you of your peace and your confidence every chance he gets. When you are tempted to despair, doubting your salvation, Turn here to Ephesians and be renewed in your mind as you remember what God has promised you. When it comes to your salvation, God has done it all. You were dead, but the Father chose you, making you alive so that you could respond to the gospel call. You were dead, but the Son redeemed you so that you could walk in the newness of life, doing good works which he prepared before you. You were dead, but the Holy Spirit has sealed you for all time so that not even you can remove yourself from the love of God. If God has given us salvation as a gift of grace through faith, then you can't add to your salvation, and you can take nothing away from your salvation. Even the good deeds you do after coming to salvation— they're all set up for you by God and they're not of your own doing. Praise God for his great grace and mercy that he has super abundantly lavished on you if you are in Christ here this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you that you, before the world ever began, chose those who would come to faith in you Lord, we praise you that we don't have to wonder, is this person someone you chose? You put no responsibility on us beyond the instruction to go into all the nations and make disciples for yourself. Lord, it is not by my clever arguing. It is not by my endeavors nor my passion that brings people to you. It is only your beautiful, gospel the gospel that every person already knows in their heart and are actively rejecting that you are God and you demand perfection that we were unable to keep that perfection and are separated from you but that you redeemed us you paid the ransom price to take ownership of us again through the death of your son and that we are sealed for all time when we come to faith in you. Lord, I pray that we would be bold to share this gospel with the lost and dying world. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that this very morning you would prick their heart to respond to that gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would protect these young men and women as they go into the world and are exposed more and more to the doctrine of hatred against you that even at Christian colleges, we do everything we can to remove you from your own Bible. We promote evolution. We promote the world's ideals of sexuality. Lord, I pray that you would guard their hearts against Satan and the power that he has influenced our nations around us try and rob us of our joy and peace in you. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.